Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello, and welcome back to The Dear Prudence Show. Once again, and as always, I am your host, Daniel Ortberg. With me in the studio this week is a very special guest, Courtney C.W. Guetta. Uh, But first, uh, I have an exciting uh, update for all of you, uh, which is from a letter writer who wrote back to us in January, on January 30th. So if you want to go back and find the column from the date of January 30th, you are more than welcome to. It was a person who was worried about quitting a job um, that they hated um, while they were filling in for somebody else's maternity leave. And they were worried that they were going to be putting the company in a difficult position. And my stance on that, as almost always, is you should put companies in more difficult positions. You're a person and they're just companies. So (laughs) here's the update. I wrote to you a few months ago because I was nervous about potentially quitting a job I hated when I was meant to fill in for a team member's upcoming maternity leave. I'm so grateful you took the time to answer my letter. My relatively small problem was nevertheless eating away at me. Anxiety, perfectionism, and inexperience made me mistake a molehill for a mountain. My dislike for the job only grew with time. Efforts to make it more palatable failed. I became deeply depressed. Weekends were overshadowed by the inevitability of returning to the office on Monday. On the bright side, I attribute the realization that I'm ready to pursue my freelance dream in part to how miserable I felt in that job. I saw a therapist about my depression and anxiety, decided that I was willing to give the job two more months, then marked a definitive final date on my calendar. I felt empowered and peaceful and gave my boss four weeks notice for a head start on hiring my replacement. The conversation went well, even though he was blindsided, but I had previously shared my concerns with him. Days after I wrote to you, I was diagnosed with a chronic condition that explained some of the health issues I'd been experiencing. It reinforced my decision to change jobs, and my coworkers, conveniently, all assumed that my diagnosis was a determining factor in my resignation, which made the whole I-just-heard-you're-leaving conversations a lot easier. My husband and I started living more frugally to prepare for a period of living on one income, which has reaped benefits even beyond our expectations. Overall, my exit was as smooth as it could have been. Freelancing's been slow so far, but even so, I'm much happier. I have a wonderful support system, and industry connections from previous work have been wonderful mentors. Despite few full-time opportunities, there's high demand for freelance workers with my skill set, and I see a bright future in my new career with hard work and patience. I'm in a much better place now than I was in January, and things are looking up. Which is wonderful. Uh, I'm always, always really glad to hear updates from people, even if it's not like things are great. But it is really nice when it's I did the thing that I was afraid of doing and now things are better, um, even though they're not perfect. And thank you so much for writing back. Um, That is such a great note to start us off on. And we are going to be focusing a lot on the workplace today, in part because my guest, Courtney C.W. Guetta, is an editor and writer who's been giving advice as Dear Business Lady since 2014. She's also the author of Is This Working? A Career Guide for Anyone Who's Interested in Professional Success, but Not at the Expense of Their Personal Investments. Courtney, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to be here. I am too. And I'm just so pleased. Um, like, you know, uh, listeners may or may not know that you gave advice as Dear Business Lady on a website that I used to run, uh, help run rather, uh, called The Toast. So I, I have, you know, been familiar with your advice for a while, but we have not actually gotten to uh, give advice together. And now we do. I know. It's exciting. And I just want you to know that today I plan on giving advice uh, that helps no one with professional success and tanks their personal investments. (laughs) (laughs) I will do my best to balance that out. Yeah, absolutely. I just want everyone to ruin everything. (laughs) 
Just blow it all up, take to the sea. Yeah. Um, I, I'm excited, though. I, I have not, like, done a Focus on Workplace episode previously, and it's always great to have somebody who um, has slightly more workplace experience because with every passing year, it's been longer and longer since I worked in an actual office, and my advice becomes worse and worse because I'll just say things like, have you tried talking to a tree about it? <laughs> Well, I'm glad to have the opportunity to talk about, you know, some slightly less worky related things because I have opinions about the whole spectrum of human behavior beyond the office. So it should be fun. Good. Well, I'm glad to hear it. I'm going to go ahead and read our first letter today because I want to. Okay. Um, And that's just how it's going to be. The subject is not the boss. Dear Prudence, I've been in a long-term relationship for almost a decade. My partner has run a handful of small businesses with varying levels of success and now makes pin money selling items on eBay and contributes nothing financially to the household. I have a very stressful executive role within a large Fortune 500 company. I'm very good at it. I know it's normal for couples to share their days with one another, but I am becoming more and more irritated with my partner when it comes to my job. She constantly tells me I should be more successful, weighs in on every work call she overhears, yells at me when I don't take her work advice, critiques my presentations, and explains with authority how to do my job. Prudence, I am so pissed off. I would never walk into her office and tell her how to sell her knickknacks on eBay. The fact that she feels qualified to manage me and my role baffles and infuriates me. It's gotten to the point where I dread coming home and having her ask about my day because I know that it's going to turn into a a half-hour-long lecture on how to do a better job. How do I shut this constant managing down? Anytime I try to dissuade her from providing her constant insights, she bulldozes right over me, insisting that she knows what she's talking about. I can't even have a conversation with her without it turning into a dissertation on how to do my job. I want to give... Oh, I have many thoughts. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to give this letter writer credit for only getting in a single dig at their partner's uh, work. Because the level of frustration here is like, I would not have blamed this person for getting eight more knickknack lines in there. Um, So the fact that they held it at one is pretty impressive. Uh, Yeah, although contributes nothing financially is that that I think maybe counts as like a half dig. Yeah, you know, you're right. This is definitely there's definitely some serious resentment of like, maybe if the partner were also uh, a Fortune 500 CEO, they would be able to deal with a little more of the constant haranguing. Yeah, I kind of feel like there's there's some kind of unhappiness that's kind of that's maybe coming through in these conversations about yeah, the, I, I the agree that there's job. I agree that there is some unhappiness coming through. Like that maybe maybe the letter writer's partner wishes they had a more demanding job or they got out of the house and had more responsibility and they're trying to live vicariously, but clearly that's not working super well for anyone. Yeah. I mean I think it's one of those things where it's certainly possible that the partner needs to figure out what's going wrong in their own career. But whether they what like whether she does or doesn't get a different kind of job, this is the sort of behavior that really needs to stop. Right. And I it's not entirely clear. This is like the kind of, you know, if there's a like advice column podcast drinking game, the like, have you had a direct conversation about this is definitely like a, a trigger for that. But there's no indication that the letter writer has ever said, like, this is stressful. Like if they maybe they get annoyed in the moment, but they I don't know if they've had a big picture conversation about like, can you please stop trying to tell me how to do my job? Right. Like I, I'm 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 rereading the letter right now, looking for uh, you know, she yells at me when I don't take her work advice. So, okay, you don't take her work advice. That's something. But 
that's it, right? Yeah, there's like any any time I try to dissuade her, but that's I think that maybe is just like in the moment, like, no, I'm not going to email that guy back or like we already have the marketing plan figured out. I don't know if there's a like when I tell you about my job, I'm not asking for advice. Please do not give it to me anymore, which is, I think, a useful conversation for many partners to have, especially if you happen to be with someone who has that tendency, which I certainly can relate to. Yeah. So I think the conversation that you need to have is a big picture one, which is here is the pattern. And, you know, tell tell her what you've told us, which is that you constantly do this. You weigh in on all of these things. You yell at me when I don't do this. You, you know, you do all these things and I need it to stop. Um, and if she tries to come back with I'm just trying to be helpful or whatever or I would want this advice or anything like that, um, the only line that you need to hold to there is just like I hear that. I'm telling you I don't like it. Like, don't get drawn into an argument about whether or not she's actually being helpful because she will probably try to defend that position for as long as she can. Um, so so don't get drawn into that back and forth of whether or not it's useful or whether or not another person might like hearing that kind of feedback or whether or not her intentions are good. Just go with, I need you to know I don't find it helpful. It irritates me. It makes me want to avoid you. And I don't want that in our relationship. Can you do that? And and maybe try to find something else that you guys can talk about, because it sounds like, I mean, these sound like fairly prolonged and involved conversations. So, you know, maybe start watching like a, you know, intense dramatic TV show that you can discuss or, you know, some some other way to spend time that's a little bit more quality with one another. Right. Yeah. And just so so if you come home and she says, how was your day? You can just go with, I had a good day. I don't want to talk about work. How was your day? Yeah. And again, that's not a substitute for the big conversation because you guys do need to have that. Um, but you also then can, you know, the way that you can hold that line in future is, um, I hate to say this, but if you need to, like, close the door when you have a work call or when she asks about how your day at work was, just say, you know, it was good. How's your sister? Um, like, just do not give her that information um, because it doesn't sound like she knows how to deal with it. And, and yeah, and ask, like, you know, you have a lot of free time. You seem really invested in my job. How are you doing? Are you feeling profoundly fulfilled, you know, with the work that you're doing right now? I want to encourage you to maybe stop and take a look at that because you're spending a lot of time and energy telling me how to do my job. And this definitely goes beyond kind of normal partners talking about like brainstorming ideas back and forth, right? Like this is this is unusual. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, this sounds it sounds intense, even if even if they did come from similar fields where like the 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 partner's advice would be helpful, it would still be a whole lot of it. So um, but on the other hand, too, for the letter writer, I think, you know, sometimes if someone gives you advice you disagree with, there's a sort of it triggers something in your brain where you're like, well, I can't let this go until I've explained why that's not a good idea, which just prolongs a conversation you aren't necessarily interested in having. So I think this is also, you know, a time where if if she can't break herself of the habit right away, you can just sort of like, oh, interesting. Hmm, maybe we'll see, you know, like accept the feedback and then file it in the never to be considered again folder of your brain and let the conversation go somewhere else rather than turning it into a like, your advice is terrible. I'm just being helpful, you know. And I would move move it up a little bit higher in terms of being direct just because I don't think that she is going to ever pick up on a cue because it sounds like she can go for an hour at a time. Um, oh, absolutely. I'm saying if they get sli- if it slips out, like she, you know, you. she's trying to like curtail this habit, but then she sometimes compulsively says something. You just be like, all right, right, let's not talk about work and move on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I would say just something like, okay, I hear that. Thanks for your input. Let's talk about something else now. So that it's like, 
it's not arguing, but it's making it very clear, like, thanks, I've heard you. We're going to talk about something else now. And again, like at that point, if you guys have the big conversation about it, if you're pointing it out in the moment and she doesn't stop, then the next move for you is, hey, I've told you before, I don't want to keep doing this. Um, Either let's talk about something else or I'm going to go take a walk. Um, And again, not in like this big, like, I'm going to punish you way or like things are going to get really heated, just sort of like you know, checking in with repeated opportunities for her to de-escalate. And then if she doesn't, you get to make a choice, you know, with or without her participation about how you would like to spend your time off of work. Um, Because this sounds really frustrating. Yeah. No. And hopefully, hopefully, whatever, if there's a big picture issue that this is kind of covering over, you can then, you know, focus on that and, and create better harmony in the rest of your lives as well, now that you're not just arguing over a job that only one of you holds. I also really hope you're able to do this because my fear for you, letter writer, is that if you let this go on much longer and then kind of blow up, you are going to say something along the lines of, I don't tell you how to sell knickknacks on eBay. And then you will <laughs> lose the moral high ground because she's going to really hone in on that one. And and you guys are going to be in a much worse fight. And I don't want that for you because that's so not the point. Yeah. No, yeah. We Generally, when giving advice, one does not want to, you know, throw, you know, gasoline on the, you know, embers of whatever conflict you're adjudicating. Right. But I can, can you not like see that happening? Oh, yeah, like, absolutely. Also, if there was ever a single time when the letter writer ever did give advice on the eBay business, that would almost certainly be, you know, brought into evidence and discussed at great length and with probably some hostility. Yeah. And, you know, ask yourself, like, do you it sounds like maybe you don't like having uh, this setup where your partner doesn't contribute to the household or maybe financially or maybe you wouldn't mind. And it's just this issue. Um, you know, ask yourself that question. I didn't know eBay still was a thing. I thought <laughs> I thought it was gone. So I feel a little bad. I only know about it because I have a pair of boots that I've been like have an alert for. So I get an email from them like every every other day with a bunch of boots that are not the boots that I want. And I'm like, why well, I should really unsubscribe from this and then I don't. So yeah. you know, I mean, it's, it's at least keeping me very aware of the continued existence of eBay. Yeah. Well, at any rate, um, <laughs> I think that's the most help we're going to be able to give this particular letter writer. Uh, would you read our next letter? Yes, absolutely. Uh, subject is paralyzed with indecision. Dear Prudence, I have a good, stable job for many years. It is the only job I've had in my professional career. However, I feel burnt out and have for several years. A friend introduced me to a company I've started doing some contracting work for on the side, and I've really enjoyed it. This company has offered me a great job with a higher salary and great benefits. The problem is I'm very risk adverse. Change makes me anxious, and this job involves a move one state away. My husband is supportive and willing to go. We'd be moving to a very desirable area, albeit one with less opportunity for him, but he's okay with that. The main problem is that part of me really wants to say yes and go for it, and another part of me says, you have a comfortable life here, don't blow it up just yet. Wait for a job in the same town or close by. Everything else about our life here is very comfortable, friends, activities, cost of living, though I've always said that I didn't want to live here forever. I've been alternately very excited by the thought of this new job that is seemingly a great fit for my skill set and filled with dread at the thought of leaving behind my comfortable routines, my good friends, and proximity to my family. I keep telling myself that we don't have to stay there forever if we don't like it, that it could be an adventure for a few years, and that we absolutely can make the effort to maintain our relationships from afar. The only reason I'm coming up with to say no is just fear of change. I'm scared that things will be different and not good. How do I get over this? Usually when I agonize this much, I just say, forget it, I must not want to do the thing that I can't commit to doing, buying, etc., but this feels different. This feels like something I need to do, I just can't work up the nerve to actually make myself go for it. 
I feel deeply targeted by this letter. <laughs> I know. I liked it paired with the update, though, because that's a that's another case of someone being like, oh, I know this is the right decision, but I'm anxious to actually put it into implementation. And clearly that worked out well for, you know, someone else. So that is promising. Also, if you, like, did a search and replace thing uh, in this letter and replaced, like, uh, job with gender uh, and taking the new job with transition, this would really describe the last, like, year and a half of, like, good <laughs> gender for the last couple of years. It's uh, the only one I've ever had. It's worked pretty well. Uh, can't stop thinking about this other opportunity. Worried about blowing my life up. Uh, it feels like something I might need to do. I just can't work up the nerve. So congratulations, letter writer. You have relatable experiences. <laughs> I mean, I, I also have the have the you know the the thing that is comfortable is often very attractive to me. Like the thing that I know as you know will kind of prevent me sometimes from going for a new opportunity. But it really is one of those things where I don't I don't see any you know any real cons to taking the new job in this letter other than just well maybe it wouldn't work out and it would be a change. Like there's no like you know even the kind Kind of the it almost feels like the letter writer is trying to find cons and like not doing the greatest job of trying to balance the scales um, with between the new job and the old one. Yeah. And I mean, I think the letter writer actually kind of seems clear, like they start out with uh, I'm paralyzed with indecision. And by the end, they feel pretty clear of like, I think I need to do this. I just need to figure out how to make that happen. Um and I think one of the things that, you know, can often hold us back from making a choice when things are OK is anytime you make a change of any kind, even if it's a fantastic change that you've wanted for a really long time, it, you know, stands in direct opposition to the fantasy of the perfect change that can only ever exist in your head. Right. Like as long as you never leave this job, the perfect job opportunity can still exist as a fantasy. Like as long as you stay at your job Maybe tomorrow you're going to get a job offer that is in the same town and you don't have weird feelings about and you are perfectly suited for and is $100 million. Um, and as long as you don't change, that you don't sacrifice that dream. Right. And it's one of those things where when you say it out loud, you're like, I'm not really sitting around thinking that's going to happen tomorrow. Like, I'm not suggesting that you have been consciously thinking this. But um, I think there is a sense of wanting to preserve the possibility of perfection by not making any choices, because any choice, even a pretty good one, is going to come with trade-offs, is going to bring up things that are outside of your control and may potentially not go great. And I think there's also an element when you're moving when you're moving from something that is a kind of known quantity to something that's new, there's a sense of, you know, you are now becoming more responsible for any downsides as opposed to the kind of quotidian crappiness of this letter writer's job, like it's at least a known quantity and it's something that like they're dealing with as opposed to we made this change and now like if, you know, if the basement of the new house leaks or, you know, my spouse can't find a job or anything bad happens from that point forward, it's kind of all my fault because it follows from this decision I made. That's not actually true, but I think that happens to, that kind of is part of the psychology that makes you cling to the thing that's more known and comfortable. Right. And I don't think the solution to your problem is going to be get rid of all those feelings and then do something new. I think you should give a little space to those feelings. Like you should, uh, you know, 
feel that dread, right? Like part of, you know, your husband might have fewer professional opportunities. Maybe there's some potential guilt there. You don't know or have control over those things. I think in those moments, it's great to ask yourself the question is like, I'm scared that things will be different and not good. Um, How do I get over this? I don't think get over it. I think ask yourself, what would I do if that happened? Like if things were different and they sucked and I hated it there, um, how long would I want to give it? Six months, a year, year and a half? How would I start planning on moving back? Would I be able to maintain a good enough relationship with my old job that I could come back if I needed to? Um, Would I be able to do freelance part-time work on the side in that new city if I had to quit that job and wanted to look for something else in the new city? Like, those are all things that might happen and that have workable solutions. You know, like right. people do sometimes move for jobs and then the job doesn't pan out. That's not like, oh, man, that is an unheard of problem. I have no idea what I would do. Yeah, actually, I have I have my own kind of connection with this letter because the reason I am talking to you right now from Syracuse, New York, is because my husband got a job out here and I was, you know, we were it was inevitable that we were going to move. We had he had to take the job. We had to go here and we actually ended up we were so invested in like, we need to find new friends. We need to establish ourselves. We don't really know anyone out here. We ended up like making more friends. Now we like have like, we hang out with more people than we did back when we lived in Chicago. Cause we were like, you know, we need to make sure we find friends. And I ended up being able to keep my job, which perhaps will be an option for the letter writer's uh, husband. He could work remotely. And if you have extra time on your hands, you could start writing a advice column for a website you admire, which is what I did when I suddenly had a change in my life. So I think I, I think that, you know, if, if what you're looking for is, you know, the kick in the pants to actually go for this letter writer, I think, you know, we are happy to provide that kick. It sounds like a really great opportunity that is worth taking. Yep. Scariness aside. Yeah, you seem to already know that this is something you want to do, and it may be a mistake, and you won't know until you make it. And I don't think the solution to making it happen is just do it and pretend that there could never be a potential downside and just feel great about it, and it's going to be awesome. It might not be. It would genuinely probably be good for you um, if for a year of your life you and your husband moved and you had to struggle and do something different and make alternate plans and figure something out. Barring, like, obviously, I hope it's not the sort of bad where you guys run out of money and and are in a really tight financial spot. But it doesn't sound like that's an immediate prospect. It sounds like part of what you're afraid of is, like, if I need to make a lot of quick decisions, if I need to be really resourceful, am I going to be able to come through and take care of myself? Um, and it, I, I think you will. I, I think the fact that you maybe overthink things is probably going to serve you well in this situation. Um, and I think the odds that it's going to go better than you think it will is pretty high. Yeah. And you won't, at least once you start moving forward with this new plan, you won't have to, your your psychological airspace won't be taken up by this decision of, you know, should we, should we go? Should we stay? You can just focus all of that energy into developing a plan for the move. And that can that can be really exciting and fun. And it's an interesting sort of challenge. And sometimes you're just like, I can't believe we're doing this. It's ridiculous. But, you know, as my dad always says, the worse the experience, the better the story. So even if it doesn't go exactly as you hope, it will probably be something you look back on and are glad that you did. Yeah. And just, you know, tell people about your anxiety. Talk to your husband about it. Talk to some of your close friends. Share it. Like, don't feel like in order to do this, I have to pretend not to be anxious. Just say, like, here are the things I'm nervous about. Talk them through. Give them space. Um, And let us know how it goes. Please send us an update. All right. This next question uh, is great because it's very specific. Um, And the subject is, that's what the phone is for. Dear Prudence, I work for a small company and get paid hourly. I use an app and phone service that my company provides to clock in and out. Since it doesn't cost them anything extra, I've been using the phone and service as my personal phone, too. 
I never explicitly asked if that was okay, but it has never been a problem. Often my bosses will text or call me on my regular scheduled day off. Usually it's just information that I'll use when I go back to work or something that I can respond to the next day. But sometimes it seems like they really want an answer right away. What's the etiquette there? Part of me wants to ignore them until the next day because it's my day off. But that feels petty when I obviously have this phone on and with me because it's also my personal. I can and have clocked in for two minutes to return a phone call, which I usually don't mind doing. But what if I don't want to? What about returning texts? The leftist in me is at odds with the part of me that feels obligated to respond because I pay no phone bill. Most of the conversation around this topic seems to be by and about salaried workers checking their email during their fancy vacations. Which is absolutely true, by the way. Thank you for giving us a question from an uh, an hourly perspective, because it is often like, I'm going to be at a fancy island for a week and a half. What should I do about emails? Which is a problem of its own. Yeah, I mean, the the thing that I was worried about reading this letter is like, is is this job secure enough? Like, what what happens if like somehow this job falls through and then suddenly you don't have a phone? Like, do you have a? I want this letter writer to have a spare phone somewhere that could be activated quickly. Yeah, yeah, and these honestly to me seem like two separate questions. One of them is genuinely. Is it okay with your company that you use this as your personal phone? Because different companies have different policies on this. Um, It's my understanding that if you use this for your personal phone, since it's also your work phone, it it is at least possible that your company could, you know, access your emails or personal messages at any time, which is maybe not a risk that you're interested in running. Um, I, I think that's actually worth getting clarity around. I think that's worth asking about, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I I don't, you know, I don't know, I'm not very tech savvy in terms of remote phone access, but it does, it seems like there are, I don't think there's anything ethically problematic about it, especially if it's not causing, you know, incurring any additional costs for the employer, but it is something... You'd want to know if they could just suddenly confiscate it or, you know, if if your if your job is the sort that people could get laid off unexpectedly. And all of a sudden you have to hang into the phone. That seems like it could really be disruptive to your life in this very phone connected era we live in. Um, and then, yeah, if you're if you're if they do have the potential to access anything you do on there, I, you know, I lead a pretty boring life and there's still stuff on my phone that I wouldn't necessarily want everyone in my office to have, you know, the ability to read. So. Right. I mean, certainly like if you were let go at any point, I think it would definitely be worth saying, like, uh, I will return it tomorrow and then, you know, take your back up, um, wipe the phone, etc. Um, not that that's just just so you have that information, not because like that's going to be able to like protect you from anything that they might try to find on your phone. But yeah, that's more of a privacy issue. Um, that's a little bit separate. Um, are you in any way obligated to respond to your bosses on your day off because you have a work phone that you also use personally? No. Yeah, the work yeah, the work phone has nothing. The fact that the your boss pro- provides your phone or your job provides your phone has nothing to do with this. I mean, I have a work provided laptop and that doesn't mean that if I get an email on a Saturday, I'm like, "Oh, I ha- well, I have this laptop here in my apartment. I guess I have to send reply to this email immediately." Right. Um, I, I, I kind of got a question like this earlier today that was about somebody who felt obligated to take shifts from their coworkers because if their coworker said, "Can you cover for me this day?" and they didn't have any plans, they felt obligated. And I think these are kind of the same question, which is like what is the purpose of time off of work? And can you like be less entitled to it if your office offers you something or if you don't have something else planned? The point of personal time isn't like 
there's sometimes that you are like physically unreachable and in a cave or only if you are like attending an important funeral once a week are you entitled to time off. The the point of time off is that you are a person, not just a worker, and that everybody is entitled to time off. What you choose to do with it, whether or not you have an arrangement with your company um, that you can continue to use a phone that you also use for work, um, that's not you then give up your right to time off. Time off is for you to just be a person. I mean, and it is tough because if you're hourly, you're supposed to be getting paid for literally any moment that you spend working on, you know, so that but that also starts to get into what this, you know, what their boss's expectations are, because I know it feels absurd to, to clock in for like a minute or two at a time. I think you're completely within your rights to ignore a text until the next day. On the other hand, if it's something like, you know, where's the red folder and you could just text back like it's on the filing cabinet near the break room. It is within your rights to not do that. And if you do do that, you should find a way to, like, work it into your tally of hours so that you're, you know, aggregate getting compensated for little moments like that. But it might not be worth the kind of line in the sand of, like, do not contact me on my day off, depending on the nature of the requests and how disruptive it would be to actually respond to them. Right. It does sound like there's kind of a company culture of contacting you, but it also doesn't sound like they're doing a ton of like demanding follow ups or like, hey, I need you to get back to me on this and I have no respect for your personal time. So it sounds like for the most part, if it's information that is not time sensitive, you just let it lie and that's fine. Um, And I think you can either continue to do that or you could just check in with your boss and say like, hey, um, I've noticed that you guys do sometimes get in touch with me with certain questions or information on my day off. And I just want to let you know, I'm not always going to be, you know, able to check it. So as long as there's not some like absolutely crucial stuff that needs to be answered in the next hour or we're all going to be in real trouble, um, I I may not get back to it on my day off. And I think that that will go fine. Like, I think part of it might just be that they are worried that they'll forget if they don't text you something, not like, where are you? Why aren't you answering? Yeah, and and it, it could an easy way to check in would be you know after one of these things that you decide you're going to let sit, you could just you know follow up like by the way I saw this come through yesterday, but since it was my day off, I wanted to wait until I was here. You know, I assume that's okay with anything that's not urgent. Oh, I, I don't think I would cop to that. I I don't think that there's any reason for you to say to your boss I saw it, but because it was my day off, I didn't do anything. Like I don't think you owe your boss that information. I think I would just say when you are at work the next day, hey, I've seen this. Um, I, I it looks like it came through when I was on my day off. I'm handling it now. That's true. I just think if the, if it is a situation where they're sometimes responding to things that are urgent or super minor, you don't want to like. It might be good to make it transparent that they're doing a certain degree of triaging of things that that rise to the level of saving versus responding to in the moment. But this is really getting into, like, the specifics of this role and the company culture. I think, you know, globally speaking, it is completely fine to protect your own time. And, you know, if you want to make sure something's okay, you can just check in with your boss and, and you know, just make sure they don't expect something that you're not giving them. Right. Yeah. So, but your basic question, letter writer, which is like, is the fact that my phone is paid for through work, does that mean I am therefore less entitled to my time off? No, absolutely not. That's a totally um, standard perk. Lots of people get benefits from their work, um, some of which include travel, some of which include a company car, some of which include a phone. And yeah, absolutely, that can sometimes affect the degree to which they're on call. Um, but if if what you're doing right now is working for you and your boss, uh, then no, you are not, like, it's not incumbent upon you to never take a day off where you don't do any work. 
Right. So, you know, you're you're it sounds like you're doing pretty well. Um, and and just in general, don't feel don't feel guilty as an individual. Yeah. And you don't have to have a, a cell phone bill for a while, which is also nice. Yeah, but definitely check check that out because I would hate for you to get left in the lurch at some point. All right. So moving out of the world of work for a little bit, um, we have a question about weddings, which, you know, we'll always get. There will be questions about weddings when the sun has burnt out. And you get to read it. Lucky you. Yes. And I'm very excited because I haven't gotten to weigh in on a wedding question before. All right. Subject, not celebrating the celebrant. Dear Prudence, my boyfriend and I are getting married. We have just picked out a venue and set a date. I've always imagined my sister's best friend's mom, M, being our celebrant. My dad's new partner, L, less than a year together, more than 20 years of friendship, is also a celebrant. It took me completely by surprise when he mentioned over the phone that L would love to be the celebrant at our wedding. I awkwardly said that we were considering M, and he replied that L would probably be okay if M did it. But if I were to choose a random new celebrant over L, then that would hurt her. Since we've only just set a date, I still haven't made sure that M is available, and I'm terrified she won't be, and I'll have to choose L. I absolutely won't do this. I can't stand the idea of her standing up there with us. I can't believe my dad would press this upon me. She's his chosen partner, not mine, and while I'm happy for her to be a guest and be a part of the wedding as my dad's partner, I can't even consider having her play such an important role. Help! How could I explain to my dad that, while I'm happy he's happy, there is no circumstance where I would want L to marry us? Does it complicate things that my parents are helping pay for the wedding? I managed to dodge away for now, but I just know this issue will resurface, and I have no idea how to proceed with the least amount of hurt caused. What do you got? Well, I think, first of all, see if M is available. Like, I mean, this problem might go away. Um, but also, you know, it's your wedding and I, I, I kind of feel like this might be a situation where, you know, this is like the dad's idea of a happy way to like bring his new partner into the family and he's maybe like his inference of like, oh, she'll be hurt if you go with someone else, like is maybe overstating the degree to which Elle is super invested in officiating this ceremony and now the letter writer is like really anxious about it like i feel like there's maybe a kind of escalation like in in every time this information like is passed to a new person where like l is actually like probably was like that would be nice if i could be involved and you know possibly doesn't really care one way or another maybe would be nice yeah that would be nice i i don't know how likely that is and either way (laughs) you're still gonna have the dad to contend with but it's a lovely fantasy yeah I mean, I think it's it's you if a wedding is so I mean, you know, notwithstanding the fact that, you know, most important day of your life is probably overstating it. It is a very big deal. And you don't want anything about it to be actively causing you distress. This person clearly feels extremely strongly about this. So if, you know, if for some reason M can't do it, I think I would just say, you know, it's I want you there as a guest. I, you know, I kind of don't want to, you know, I wouldn't want you to have to work kind of to frame it in a way that's very kind. Um, But I don't think you should. I think this is something you should stand your ground on um, if it's going to if the person that's actually performing the ceremony is going to be like upsetting you by the very nature of who they are. That is not a good scene for any kind of wedding ceremony. Yeah. And I it seems to me at least like the dad is a little far gone from I wouldn't want you guys to go to all the trouble. Like, I don't think that he's going to be pacified with that. I think he would pretty quickly come back with it would not be trouble. It is an active desire of our hearts. Um, So I think that you should be prepared for that. 
to have a backup yeah. for if that doesn't work. Um, so the, your your other question, by the way, letter writer, does it complicate things that my parents are helping to pay for the wedding? Yeah, uh, of course. Absolutely. Um, when other people pay for stuff, they often expect that they're going to be able to put their oar in. Um, and to a certain extent, they do. So um, again, I don't think this is something that's worth saying like, well, don't pay for the wedding then. But just bear in mind, if at some point um, your parents are making a ton of demands that you just hate and there's no way to make a lot of reasonable compromises, one option you have is uh, downsizing your wedding and saying, you know what, I appreciate the offer. It's actually not worth it. We are going to go to City Hall or get married in a friend's backyard and have a cake and that's it. Like that is an option. So so bear that in mind. Um that doesn't mean you can't push back against stuff, but if at a certain point they are just determined to enforce all of their wishes on your wedding, um, that may be an option you will have to pursue, which is don't let them pay for the wedding. Yeah, and I think, you know, I mean, I think in terms of this bigger conversation, it would be good to have some sort of some reasons laid out ready to go give to your dad that aren't unkind to L, but that go beyond the like, you know, the dodge that he might not pick up on of like, we wouldn't want you to have all the trouble. Like, I don't know that maybe it ends up in being an implicit commitment ceremony between, you know, your dad and his new partner that kind of muddies the waters or there's a lot of really strong resistance, but it's not exactly the letter writer doesn't really get into where that's coming from beyond like I can't deal with that idea and I feel like it's if you if you end up having the conversation with your dad of like I can't deal with that idea you want to have a conversation where you explain the whys without it seeming like you have an issue with L which it doesn't sound like you actually have so um so maybe do a little bit of soul searching around this and you know it's not going to maybe be the most pleasant conversation you ever have but you know by the time the wedding actually happens um, I, I think any reasonable person would not want to insert themselves into someone else's wedding ceremony. And if, yeah, and if this is, you know, perhaps you're dealing with unreasonable people, then, you know, maybe you elope or, um, you know, figure out something that doesn't, you know, that doesn't have them in so much more control. Yeah. And I think just, you know, just go with, I think it's pretty simple to just say, like, we are actually asking a, a friend to be our celebrant. Um I'd love to find something for your partner to do during the ceremony um, and then think of something that you would be willing to have her do. We're really excited to like have you guys there in your capacity as family. Um, and we've chosen another celebrant. Like don't don't even like try to like hear like I, I think it's fine to walk through the reasons. But mostly I think you just need to make it clear like we are getting married. Here's the person that we would like to marry us. Um, and you don't even have to go into backup of like, if she can't do it, we want somebody else who isn't her to do it. Like, don't invite your dad into that part of the process. Like, just go with that's who we've chosen. If for some reason M is not available, you know, find somebody else and choose them. Um, but to just make it clear, it's not like, hey, we're going to ask these three people. And if they all fall through, L can do it. It's just like, I love and value your partner. I'm excited for her to get to be there. Um I, I I want somebody else as a celebrant, and that's it. Um, hopefully, your dad will hear that, and it will you will be able to communicate. Like we're not looking to shut her out. It's not that we don't want her involved. It's not that I don't love and respect her. Um, it's not that I don't care about your partnership. Um, that's 
that's just not it. But it is a shame. People get really highly invested in other people's weddings and how the ceremony is going to go. And they bring a lot of energy to the table. I know. I was going to say, like, this is an object lesson in, like, the less you can have an opinion about anything that happens in the course of someone else's wedding ceremony and reception, the better. Like, it is, you know, it is never a good, it never it never goes somewhere valuable if you have opinions other than, I hope everyone has a good time and it goes well. Like, that's, right. that's it. Right. I mean, I get that it is a charged day, and I certainly can understand, like, having some private feelings. But generally speaking, a wedding is not a referendum on how you feel about other people. Generally speaking, a wedding is a day where you and the person you're marrying have to spend a lot of time balancing a lot of different people's interests. Um, And there's often, you know, it's not like today I have chosen my four best friends and everyone who's not a bridesmaid or a groomsman is not on the list and they suck. Or anybody who is not asked to be the efficient is somebody that I think is just a nuisance and a hanger on like or if somebody walks me down the aisle it means i hate all my other relatives like it's just um it's a lot yeah you know and people who are going to hold grudges are going to hold them no matter how carefully you try to protect their feelings and make everyone feel equally included and people who are reasonable and chill are going to maintain that demeanor regardless of you know last minute changes of plans or you know we can only have x number of attendants or things like that so you know don't don't make your life more difficult trying to please the people that are probably not going to be very pleasable to begin with yeah and so i i would go with don't manage to keep dodging it you say you know the issue will resurface i think you should be the one to bring it up because otherwise it's just going to be hanging over the back of your head and by the time your dad does bring it back up again he might feel even more upset that you have ignored it so i would just say dad i want to talk again um, about your suggestion like from last week um i i just want you to know we've already chosen a celebrant we're really excited about her um that's who we want um And I don't want, you know, your partner to marry us, but I do care about you and I care about her. And I want you to know that I'm really excited for you guys to be a part of the ceremony. So, you know, think through if there is something else that you would want her to do, whether that's like do a a reading um, or, you know, I don't really know what else goes on into weddings um, besides giving readings or doing the guest book or being an usher. But surely there is something else that you can um, suggest. And again, he may feel that that's not as good as the thing he wanted and that would hurt his feelings. And that's okay. You can hear him out and say, like, what's this about? Like, do you feel like we're not, you know, it's not customary for like the stepmother of the bride or, or whatever to be the celebrant. Like, this is hardly like, oh, man, you're really breaking with tradition here. So to yeah. a certain extent, his justification and feeling hurt is sort of something he is bringing to the table all by himself. Yeah. Agreed. So hopefully, and also hopefully whatever hurt feelings, if there are any, will all have blown over completely by the time the wedding happens. And you'll have many other things to deal with in the course of the planning. Yeah. And you can always just say, like, Dad, I'm really sorry you're hurt. I really care about you. Um, you know, this is what we're going to do. Like, I'm not going to change what I'm doing because you're hurt, but I I care. Like, you can, I think you can do both of those things. I think you can communicate that you care that someone's feelings are hurt without necessarily um, agreeing that their position is reasonable or that they should get what they want. And you always have in your back pocket, you know, if it gets to be too much, you know, you can have a different sort of wedding. So, yeah, there's, there's always, you know, ditch the money and run as an option. All right. Now we're going back to actually kind of combining the world of romance. Yeah, uh, exactly. Of work. Uh, The subject is uh, crush on my job interviewer, which is just, you know, really great. 
Um, I don't get enough questions like this. Um, I'm just trying to imagine, like, I've never had a job interview where I felt like, man, I am connecting with the person asking me about my work history. I have only ever felt like I wish I were anywhere but here. I feel like the fakest human being alive. We have not, like, we've made eye contact, but, like, we've both shut off the light in our eyes behind our eyes. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I've had job interviews where I've, like, I've, like, been like, oh, that person seemed cool. Like, I wish there was, like, some way we could, like, be friends even if I don't end up with this I job. But I've been in the same this. job for a very long time. And I've been with the person who is now my husband since I was uh, a freshman in college. So I haven't had a lot of job interviews when I was single beyond when I used to work at Kohl's. Uh, so um, and I do not even remember the slightest thing about that interview at this point. So. Man. I, I I may be hurting my future employment, but I will just say I have never had a job interview where I did not feel anything other than completely degraded. Just like, my <laughs> God, we are two human beings sitting in this room, both pretending to be just like absolutely jazzed about something that both of us have to get paid to care about. Um, and we're both trying to hide our desperation um, and irritation um, and the fact that we're trapped indoors. Um, and that's extremely alienating. I think I'm just like naturally too chatty. I've definitely also been on the like hiring side of things. And I'm like, oh, that that person had like this interesting thing on their resume and I want to talk to them about it. But like it's a totally random side conversation that does not belong in this interview. I hope we can I hope they get hired so we can like chat about beer. Even if it like quote unquote goes well or I feel like this is a job I would enjoy, I just always want to apologize to like my eternal soul when I'm walking out. Just like I'm sorry that we live in a world where I have to do that to you in order to eat. I wish it were different, <laughs> but it's not. So anyways, that's what anyone who ever does a job interview with me ever again in the future in either direction will uh, know if they ever listen to this podcast. So um, with that in mind, dear Prudence. I recently interviewed for a short-term position with a company I also interviewed with for a different job a few months ago. Both times, I've really gotten along with one of the women interviewing me. I, a lady and a fool, am rather smitten with her. She's my age, super sweet and easy to talk to, and pretty in a way that is exactly my type. I'd love to hang out with her sometime outside of a professional context, but she could end up being my boss for a while, and I don't even know if she's gay or bi. Perhaps it's the spring weather, but I haven't felt a crush like this in a long time, and I feel ready to explore romantic pursuits. My instinct is to wait until I either get rejected or finish the job, then ask her out for a platonic coffee date to test the waters. However, I have no idea what would be appropriate and not awkward in this situation. Any advice? I just want to start by saying, I think the fact that you called yourself a lady and a fool is very charming, and I... I'm just not responding as a professional person at all. I'm just like, yes, and then make a movie about it. It's so cute. I bet she loves you. I don't know that at all. I know, but I, I, this is when you definitely do need to try to get an update on, especially if it ends up actually going going the way the letter writer hopes that it will. Yes. Oh, my God. I hope you get offered a better job somewhere else, and then you two go out, and then you fall in love. That is not an objective position from which I can give good advice. So I'm just going to reel this back in for a second. And say one last time that I love you and I think you're great and I hope you guys stay together forever. Okay, putting um, that to the side, what's our yeah. advice? What do you think? Um, I think that the instinct is good to like, I mean, you, can, you definitely can't ask this person out if they are going to be your boss. You can't date your boss. Like, I mean, it has happened in the course of human history, but it is never a good idea to be romantically involved with your manager or your direct report. But I mean... If you if that, you know, option actually fully goes off the table, um, 
I think, I mean, why not? You know, worst thing that could happen is she'll say no. I mean, I feel like the platonic coffee date follow up to a job interview is unusual enough that she might already wonder if it is perhaps a date. But if she's interested in you as a person one way or another, you know, she's like, that's a very easy thing for her to say no to. And if she says yes, then, you know, you can, you know, I I feel like I trust your charisma enough that you can take it, you know, handle yourself from there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think absolutely wait. If you don't get the job, go ahead, ask her out on the coffee date with the total understanding that she may never respond or say no. And then you would just absolutely have to move on with your life. Um, If you do get offered the job, um, it's a short term position. I would say wait, you know, wait a couple of months and then ask her out when it's over. Um, It's always better to not try to date people while you're working together. And it might be kind of pleasantly frustrating to delay um, a first date for a couple of months. And if you those are the only options, right? Yeah, that's it. Basically, I would say, though, in in the kind of coffee date, you know, kind of offer, if you know, assuming that the that the job falls through to make it clear, like to kind of put something that makes it clear that this is like a more personal connection, because if you hit it off with the interviewer and she gets the impression that this is like an informational interview where like you're, you know, you're hoping to like pick her brain about work stuff that could make Trying right. to pivot it and yeah, it would be a little more awkward. Right. Like use like, use the phrase like outside like say something like, I'd love to hang out in a non professional capacity. Um yeah. that's not the most charming way of putting it, but definitely at some point make it explicit that this is not trying to become casual work friends. This is about social like use the word social or non professional or personal or something that makes it clear that she is not being asked this in her capacity as her job, um, but because yeah. you enjoy her company. And if the if the situation were flipped where this was like an interviewer writing in about an interviewee, I would say you really can't do that at all. Oh, the power totally dynamic agree. Is, yeah. Yeah. No, the only reason that I'm saying yes to this is because you don't have any even potential or even the appearance of control over her future, like ability to make a living um, in the other yeah. direction. You just can't. Um, yeah. Thanks for pointing that out. I forgot about power dynamics because I was so enamored with this adorable story. I know. I know. I really <laughs> I ship them now. Um, but, you know, who knows? There's a lot of it. There's a lot of unknowns here. So, we'll, you know, we'll see. But I I want I want this letter writer to if if this crush doesn't pan out to to find someone who appreciates their uh, their perspective on the world. I want something better than a job to come out of a job interview. Yes. All right. So, again, uh, still we've got, like, combining your social life with your work life uh, in this next letter. And it's a, it's a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, yes. You no, yes. This is Friendship HR. Um, dear Prudence, about 12 years ago, I became good friends with someone I worked with. We were peers in separate departments but collaborated often. We worked together very well, enjoyed each other's company socially, and saw each other through some really hard personal events. About eight years ago, my friend left our employer to pursue other opportunities, a decision they would later regret. In the time since, they've bounced from job to job. They've had run-ins with terrible bosses, nasty coworkers, unprofessional expectations, and even a place that went out of business. They're finally at a decent job, but not exactly fulfilled in making a salary that's about the same as what they had when they left our employer all their years ago. 
Meanwhile, I've been climbing the ladder still at the same company with good experiences and opportunities. My friend and I definitely don't see each other as much as we did when we worked together, but we are still close. When we do get together once every few months, we pick up right where we left off like old times and inevitably talk about our careers. They often mention their regrets for leaving my employer. I am now interviewing for a big promotion, and I have a decent shot at landing the job. If I get it, I want to hire my friend to come work for me. The last time we got together, we let the daydreaming go a bit too far, and my friend sounded at times like they were interviewing. The position that I would hire them into, if I could, would be higher ranking than the role they had when they left, and far above what they've been doing since. But I trust this person, we work together so well, and I have confidence that they can do the job. The problem, if there is one, is that my coworkers know that we are still friends. If I get this promotion, I don't want to be seen as playing favorites. I'll need to rally support and respect from my team. There would be internal candidates whom I would be overlooking in order to bring back my friend. I'm also not sure how to handle the interviewing process. Is it okay to give my friend a heads up about the job description that I have in mind for them, or would that be out of line? I can't make them any promises, and I don't want anything to damage our friendship. But our friendship was born out of our work in the first place, and it would be a dream come true to work with them again. Please help me figure out how to navigate this professionally and respectfully for everyone. Mm. <sighs> <laughs> Well, so for starters, there's a lot going on here. But for starters, you know, I, I I understand the impulse to not want to damage your friendship. But if you if this person did get hired as your direct report, again, a power dynamic emerges that would have to necessarily change the friendship for at least the duration of the time that they were reporting to you. Um, if that 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 may or may not constitute damage, I've seen versions of this work really well. I've seen versions of this work less well. Um, but it would definitely, you'd have to kind of think very uh, carefully about the new boundaries and the new parameters of your relationship if you become this person's boss. Right. And I, I, I do want to point out the obvious here, which is you don't have this job yet. Like, I, I totally understand wanting to prepare for how you would handle this situation if it comes up. But just bear in mind, there's nothing for you to do right now in terms of talking to your friend. And in fact, I think you should avoid talking to your friend because um, what you guys are going to want to do right now is sort of keep talking about how cool it would be. Um, and it will make you feel more like psyched to, to, to imagine that prospect. And you'll you'll kind of mentally be like, oh, I already have the job, right? Like the more time you spend talking about this, even if it's to like, hey, let's, let's both check our expectations. Like, um, I, I think that will just make you feel more more internally certain that the job is yours and it's you, you apparently you only have a decent shot so for right now what you do is prepare yourself for the interview and wait that's it that's the yeah. only thing that's on your plate right now um in terms of what you would want to do if you got the promotion and if you were given the like budget and discretion to hire for that position and if as you were interviewing people, your friend was the absolute best candidate for the job. That's one thing. But you might get the promote. You might not get the promotion. Right. You might get it and then find out that you don't have the budget to hire anybody. You might get it and find out that you're not the only person involved in the hiring process. Like other people might have input. You might get it and go through the process of interviewing your friend and other candidates and realize your friend is not the best candidate by a long shot. Right. And I think that's I mean, I think 
even if it wouldn't normally be the case that other people will be brought into the interview process, I think if, you know, if the promotion and, you know, this hiring opportunity both go through, I think you actually have a responsibility to bring someone else in and and to be upfront about the facts, especially since it's already, it seems like common knowledge that you have a personal history with this person because you don't want a situation where it seems like they just got fast-tracked and, you know, passed over other well-qualified internal candidates. You need at least some Someone else who could be seen as objective co-signing that decision. I mean, and there still might be some resentment, but that would at least help, you know, obviate the possibility of people thinking, oh, now my new boss just does whatever she wants and hires her friends, which, you know, is not um, is not the look you want for your big new role as a manager. Right. And to really want to balance that, like, especially because it sounds like you've never hired anyone before. Um, and you say that this would be a lot higher ranking than the role they had when they left eight years ago and far above what they've been doing in the ensuing eight years. And that's not to say that nobody has ever been promoted, like, in leaps and bounds and been able to rise to the occasion. But it's just when you put all those things together and it's like, this is my first time hiring. I have not worked with this person in practically a decade. Um, it's way above the skills that they have right now. You know, I, I can see why you're worried about being seen as playing favorites um, and making sure that you um, are being professional, because right now, I don't know that you are. And that's not to say you're behaving in a terrible, unprofessional, awful way. It just seems like you're letting the fact that you really like this person and you really feel for the many professional setbacks they've experienced uh, sort of distract you from the next task at hand, which is try to get the promotion. Yeah, I mean, I think... I think ultimately the the real thing to keep in mind is that you hiring them is to at least some extent a bit of a liability for you because of the personal entanglements. If they are going to be great at the job and you are confident in that and you're confident that you guys can work well together under that reporting structure relationship, then then great. But if you're thinking like, oh, and I already know them and I already know they do good work and they'll want to do what I tell them because they're my friend, that doesn't necessarily follow that it, that the that this hiring situation will actually go well. So, you know, if you shouldn't think of it as like, oh, I have an opportunity to do them a favor, like you should only hire them if it would be doing you a favor as the manager to have this person under you and working as part of your team because you don't want to, yeah, like it's nice to be friendly and help people, but not at the expense of your own reputation in a career that you've clearly worked really hard to build. Right. And I cannot think of a quicker way to torpedo this friendship um, then promoting your friend into a job they're not actually qualified for right now, pretty quickly realizing that this is not working and then kind of professionally resenting one another while also trying to maintain a personal friendliness. Like, only hire this friend if at the end of the hiring process you do feel and the other people involved in the process feel as confident as you do right now. Um, so, all of that said, the question is, is it okay to give my friend a heads up about the job description that I have in mind for them, or would that be out of line? At this stage, that's out of line. Yeah. It's just going to get their hopes up for something that may not happen. Right. You don't have that job. Um, you don't have clearance to hire for that yet. Like, there's there's just no reason to get to invite someone to start daydreaming about a job that does not yet exist um, and that you do not yet have the, like, discretion to hire for. So, no. Keep it to yourself. Yeah. And and if it if it all goes well, like you you still I mean, I think if the, if the job is actually, you know, is at the point where it's getting posted and you do want them to apply, then sure. But I mean, 
be proceed with extreme caution and be like error on the side of absolute transparency with everyone else that you work with about this, because it, otherwise it could really you could lose the friendship and potentially, you know, negatively impact your own career at the same time. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And I just I'm nervous when you say there are internal candidates I would be overlooking in order to bring back my friend, which makes it sound like you've already decided interviewing's just a formality. I would not take any other candidate seriously. It's my friend or nothing. And I just don't think that's a good way to approach the hiring process. Um, I I think it would be one thing if you were like, look, I can acknowledge my I can acknowledge my biases. I would want to interview my friend. I would very much hope that they would be the most qualified person. But I'm prepared to take a look at everybody and try to be as objective as I can. But the fact that you're just like, man, I'm going to make these internal candidates interview for a job that I've already decided they're not ever going to get. That's not a good that's not professional or respectful. No. So that you would really need to adjust. So don't bring this up with your friend. When you guys do get together, um, don't invite a lot of speculation about how cool it would be to work together. Talk about other stuff. Even if you talk about work, just talk about what their job's like right now. Um, Talk about what your job's like right now. Don't talk about the promotion. If you don't get the promotion, you know, end of dilemma. If you do get the promotion, um, offer your friend the opportunity. Let them know. Um, don't, Don't overlook those internal candidates. Like, do yourself, do your future self a favor and hire the best person for the job, even if it's not your friend. Your friend will be okay. Your friend is not totally destitute. Your friend sounds like a resourceful, hard worker who's had a lot of bad luck. Um, Hopefully their luck will change soon. In the meantime, they're, you know, they're able to take care of themselves. They are able to work. They're not in dire straits. So there's no emergency. Yeah. There's other ways to help them, too, without actually hiring them into your direct chain of command. I mean, if you're if you're so convinced that your that your friend is kind of has skills that aren't reflected in their current job, like offer to help with their cover letter and resume if you haven't already, you know, kind of help maybe try to help them get ahead in their career in a way that doesn't, you know, directly implicate you in everything that happens, you know, from there on out. Um, yeah, maybe there are other jobs in your company that you can be a reference for, you know, um, if if it's partly just the company they miss, like maybe there are other jobs in other departments. Um, you know, there's there's other things you can do here besides deciding, I know I'm going to get this promotion. I know I'm going to be able to hire for this position. I know I'm going to give it to my friend no matter how good anybody else is. Like that's not the right strategy for you to take. Agreed. And, um, you know. Good good luck. I, I really want an update from this one. I would say number one update I want is asking out the job interviewer. Uh, and number two is this one, because this could go in one of so many different directions. Yes. I wish both the letter writer and their friend good luck in hopefully non-intertwined career paths from here on out. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe you'll find a great way to intertwine, but you will want to do it the right way. You yeah. will not want to do it the way that you have described here in this letter. Um, And I would also love to hear from anyone who has hired a friend or been hired by a friend, whether that worked out beautifully or very, very badly. I am super interested to hear from you. So get in touch if you get the chance. Courtney, we did it. I know. Thank you so much. I I know we did get to talk about a lot of like business related things, but is there any sort of just like overarching business advice that you would like to give everyone before we send you off into the day? Um. I think the thing I'm always hammering on the most is that you should always make sure that anything that feels like an obligation to you, professionally speaking, is not actually 
really check in whether about whether or not it's actually an obligation in terms of what your manager and your coworkers expect, or if it's just something that you are kind of internalizing that is based on some made up standard for professionalism. Because um, I feel like a lot of times, you know, we end up working longer than we want or, or responding to emails, you know, during our downtime because we feel like there's some kind of, you know, glowering panopticon that's like watching us and judging us if we don't and actually no one cares so you know you want to be you know have a good reputation and be responsive but don't um don't you know push yourself too hard based on something that's ultimately kind of imaginary a of all damn um (laughs) yikes yeah i mean you nailed it and if i could if i could like instantly and accurately distinguish between internal pressure and external pressure, I would have such a better life because I so often can't. um, And I love externalizing my own issues and making it the universe's problem. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely easier said than done. But I find if there's something where it's a low stakes thing, where even if someone does get upset that you didn't do it, you know, on the timeline they wanted, it's not that big of a deal. Sometimes it's good to kind of like lean into that sense of anxiety. And then when you find out like, oh, no one sent like eight angry emails saying like, what's wrong with you? You should be fired. Why didn't you get this done? It it kind of helps train you that like, okay, maybe it's okay for me to, you know, to go take a walk in a park, you know, for an hour and not look at my email or something like that. Yep. That's it. All right. Well, hopefully we have made everyone's professional lives a tiny bit better. Um at least for today. And a couple of personal um, lives, too. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much, Courtney. Have a fabulous rest of the day. Come back soon. Thanks. It was great talking with you. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327. And you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location. And at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short. 30 seconds. A minute tops. Thanks for listening.